Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you are joining us here today. And welcome to this brand new, highly anticipated little series called Deliverance. Now, you might not know this because you're brand new to us, but some of us have been here for a long time. And what might be shocking is we have never done a series on spiritual conflict, even though for 20 plus years, we as a church have willingly and and with courage tried helping people through this very difficult conversation of Satan and evil and darkness. We never wanted this conversation, by the way. When this all began 20 plus years ago, we thought people down the street, those weird churches that did that stuff, maybe they could handle it. We didn't even know if we agreed and we'd only hang out with them in, in heaven. And we wanted nothing to do with it. It was way out of our comfort zone. But person after person kept coming asking for help. And so we had to respond. And 20 plus years later now, hundreds, well, thousands of cases later, but hundreds and hundreds of us who attend Sanctus are free. And so we want to take the time over the next four weeks to outline what we believe about spiritual conflict and what God is doing, has done, and is going to continue to do. So let's all begin. Whether you go to Sanctus Church, you're from another church or no church at all, let's begin with this question. What is spiritual warfare? Well, the Bible's clear that spiritual warfare or spiritual conflict is carried out on three fronts. Scripture is clear. There's a holy trinity, and also there is an unholy trinity made up of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the world doesn't mean the globe. The world refers to human systems that function in ungodly ways. And the flesh refers to us, our sinful stuff, our sin-infected human nature. And the devil is the chief fallen angel, a sentient being who fell and corrupted himself before the beginning of time. Now, when people think about spiritual conflict, especially in church circles, they almost always focus and talk about the devil, despite the fact the Bible is clear about the power of sin and clear about threats from ungodly world systems. So let's start with sin, not Satan. Listen to Paul, one of our greatest leaders chosen by God, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, or took the gospel to the Roman Empire, and listen to his struggle with sin. Romans 7.15. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. This is the cry of every believer, including St. Paul himself, who's trying to obey God but keeps on falling time and time again. Actually, this is the cry of those who rely on their own power, even though they have access to the Spirit. See, Christians, we don't actually have to sin because we have power through the Holy Spirit. Non-Christians don't have a choice. But Paul still finds himself dominated and struggling with sin. That's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual conflict. And anyone who's fallen Jesus for a day, a month, or generation, for decades, we all go, wow, huge amen to that. That's me. I relate to that. It was Thomas A. Kempis, that great mystical devotional writer, that talked about his frustration like this. Oh, what I suffer within. Well, as I think on heavenly things in my mind, the company of fleshly things cometh against me when I pray. Old school way of saying, every time I try doing God's stuff, something's there fighting it. Even Paul, even John says in 1 John 3.20, even if our hearts condemn us as Christians, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So sin is real. And let's just have that honest moment. We as humans, let alone as Christians, we long to sin. We actually enjoy sinning. We, we like fornication and adultery and being greedy and covet, covet and, 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 and murder in our thought. Like we, we're, 
led towards this. And yet at the same time as Christians, we long to obey God and we long not to do those things as we long to do those things. And we want to look like Jesus. See, this is a war of loves and this is spiritual warfare. And who has the greater love? Now we're going to talk more about the world and Satan in a minute. But the next thing that's really important we all catch is this. Spiritual conflict is an attack on three fronts, world, flesh, devil, but in two arenas or two areas doctrine or worldview and experience. The basis of our thinking and the reality of our experiences are both under assault. In other words, spiritual warfare takes place intellectually and spiritually as much as it does experientially, feeling, and emotionally. So yeah, play with tarot cards, believe in them or not, darkness is going to show up. Read your horoscope, darkness is going to show up. Get involved in en masse violence and video games, guess what? Darkness is going to show up. Get involved in systematic hate against someone else, darkness is going to show up. But also think wrong things, believe wrong things, darkness is going to show up. That's why Paul, near the end of his life, writing to Timothy, said in first, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, the spirit clearly says that in the end times, the latter times, which we're living in, someone, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. This means there are demonic beings that manipulate and direct and influence philosophies and political movements and spiritual and religious movements and false versions of Christianity and many other worldviews that affect billions of people. There are worldviews dominated in many places over many lives that are demonic in origin or are being sustained by the demonic. To summarize, let me put it like this. You always have the world and its ungodly systems. You've always got sin and our struggle with sin, both personally and then corporately. And then you've got the kingdom of darkness. Now, here's the question. Who owns all of this? Well, the devil. Don't forget who he was and is and who all the angels are that fell with him. John puts it like this in John 8, 44. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's actually no truth in him, nothing. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. Oh, wow. So he's a murderer. There's no truth in him. He is anti-truth. He doesn't believe in truth and he lies all the time. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says this. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. See, that's why it's so dangerous. The spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ look the same because the spirit of Antichrist will end up doing almost all the same things like the spirit of Christ, but for wrong purposes or wrong motives. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Now, there's so much you can unpack. Like, for example, maybe you've never thought about this. The three temptations given to Adam and Eve are repeated with Jesus. But unlike the first Adam, the second Adam does not give in. Thank God, amen, everyone. But what we're talking about today specifically, do you remember what Satan did in the last few moments of his temptation of Jesus? The account is found in Matthew 3 and 4 and other places, but uh, I think other places, but 3 and 4 in Matthew specifically. Just before this last moment, Satan was praying on Jesus' overwhelming hunger and told him to turn stones into bread and, and Jesus wouldn't do it. It was the great Catholic thinker Henry Noun that observed the temptation was to be spectacular to prove God will help you, the call, the, the call to have great applause. Oh, people are gonna love you, Jesus. What a show you're gonna put on, Jesus. Everyone needs to be loved and look like you, Jesus. You'll, you'll be retweeted and hundreds of millions will like you on Instagram and talk about you. You deserve the show. You're the show. God wants you to be the center, not God. See, that was the temptation. I love again when Henry Nouwen said, Jesus refused to be a stuntman. 
He did not come to walk on hot coals or swallow fire or put his hand in, his, in, the, in, the, hand in the mouth of a lion to demonstrate he had something to be or to be authentic. The Son of God can only live in a relationship of trust that needs no test. Christians, perplexed by the apparent thin line between a prayer of faith and putting God to test, should note that the devil's suggestion here is an artificially created crisis, not trusting in God in the situations which result from obedient service. But see, it's the last temptation that reveals the extent of Satan's power and influence which we're working through today. It reads like this in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to Jesus, all this I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. All the color, all the military might, all the food, all the pleasure, all the treasure, all the physical reality, Satan owned it all. And the goal, I don't know if you thought about this, the goal was to get Jesus to be king, but king in the wrong way. This was an attack on Jesus' identity by, by tempting him to bypass his call. See, God had already promised Jesus was going to get everything, all the way back in the Psalms. Psalm 2.7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you're my son today, I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the goal was to give Jesus the earth without the mission of the cross. Hello. Oh, and the goal was to give the earth without the establishment of the church. So in other words, Satan says to, to Jesus, you can be king and powerful and self-made and you don't need to suffer and you don't need to go... Just be self-reliant. One person wrote, it seems easier to be God than love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own one's life than to love life. Wow. The point here, though, is the devil actually did own all the kingdoms of the world, and he could offer them to Jesus. You might not be sure about this, but there are over 300 references to the demonic in Scripture. Satan, demons, evil spirits, God of this age, principality, power, ruler, authority, spiritual forces. And why does that matter? Well, let's talk about the extent of this war. All the grand overarching themes in the Bible run from beginning to end. So creation, covenant, salvation, redemption, judgment, they're everywhere. But so is spiritual conflict. Actually, the very first entrance into spiritual conflict is Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and it ends in Revelation 21. Some of you are like, the second verse of the Bible? Yes. The second verse of the Bible shows us the battle had already begun. Let me read it to you. Genesis 1, 2. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, I don't know if you've been confused by this. I always used to go in my Sunday school days, but where did the water come from? God had not created water yet. What's up with that? Well, when you read this in the original language, oh, this is really interesting. It actually reads like this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaotic, destructive, or hostile waters of creation. There's this resistance in this verse, this hostility. There's an ominous evil that starts right at the beginning of creation. And they're connected to this water image. Now, this is all going to make sense when you go to the end of the Bible. Revelation 12 tells us of the beginning of that great war. Let me read it to you. Revelation 12, 3. Another wondrous sign or another sign appeared in the heavens. An enormous red dragon, remember this, with seven heads, remember that, 10 horns and seven crowns on his head. And a tail swept one third of the stars of the sky and flung them to the earth. That's where you get the idea that one third of the angels 
joined Satan's rebellion. It says in verse seven, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon, and his, uh, the dragon and his angels fought back. They were not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So watch this. In the beginning, when the uncreated was becoming created, there seems to be a foreboding darkness, a disorder, something's out of place, something dangerous, wrong, evil, and rebellious. This darkness, this deep, this abyss, this water. And again, in Hebrew, that first verse says, there was a dark, dangerous, hostile, raging, out-of-control sea described as the deep. That's again in the original language. Now, this becomes even more clear when you go to Revelation 21. It reads like this in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any, oh, sea. Now, we always talk about the new heavens, the new earth, but we rarely talk about, and there's no longer any sea. Now, when I first read this, I was upset. The sea's gone, but I told God, I, 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 I like the sea. I like water. I, I, I want to sit by the ocean when all of this is over. Surely when I get my epic new resurrection body, I get to learn how to surf for the first time. And so many of you, maybe you're naturalists by, by sort of design. You love water and ocean and waves, and that's where you're closest to God. This is not saying there's not going to be beautiful oceans in the new heavens and new earth. This is connected to destructive, chaotic waters. That's not going to be there in the new heavens and the new earth. And what's in those waters is no longer going to be there. See, there's a connection between the first beginning and the second beginning. And now all of this becomes clear when you start reading between Genesis and Revelation. In the Old Testament, there's all these weird, seemingly almost mythological beings that are mentioned in Psalms and Job, Jeremiah, and things like Leviathan, Behomoth, Yam, Rahab, not, not the woman in Joshua, a different thing. And, and they almost, you could read them like maybe they're crocodiles or whales. I grew up in a church that always wanted to make sure we didn't believe in evolution. They say, oh, see, these are dinosaurs. They're not. They're not, sorry. Leviathan, but by the way, all of these things live in raging, dangerous water. Leviathan in Hebrew and Canaanite imagery is a twisting serpent that lived in the sea with, ready everyone? seven heads. Oh, it also was connected to Yam. And that was seen as a hostile, strong cosmic creature that God struggles with and overcomes in water, Psalm 74. Rahab is connected to the sea. Uh, and, and Behomoth is understood as a mythical sort of creature possessing supernatural characteristics. Now, these evil forces, when you read about them in the Apocrypha in the New Testament, are now understood as the devil. But the ancient Hebrew and Canaanite literature talks about them as entities or gods to be worshipped. They were feared and they threatened the fabric of creation. And they lived in destructive waters. All of this is metaphor to say there's a real war going on and there's not, literally don't go down to Lake Ontario and rebuke things out. No, 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 no. The point is these things are real. And this is poetry about it. So the battle has been raging since the beginning. And after Adam and Eve fell, and the Satan fell, and God really did overcome Leviathan, etc., the world and flesh come into play. Now, there's so much more for us to talk about. The Bible also talks about how every human being will experience the kingdom of evil or the kingdom of God. Now, let me just do this. 
We begin with a biblical reminder here that every human being you've ever seen who's ever existed is made in the image of God. This makes us different than the other animals. We are in the image of God. This is why we believe in life in the womb. And we also believe as people have their final stages of aging, they also must be protected. The Bible is also clear, though, that every human being, though incredibly valuable and made in the image of God, is either owned by Satan or God and no one else. You're a citizen of one kingdom or the other. Think about the implications of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this age or this world has blinded the mind of all non-Christians, unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Do you believe this? That the bulk of humanity, all your friends who aren't Christians, are incapable of seeing the gospel or Jesus or understanding because they're literally blinded by the demonic? It's true. Every non-Christian you've ever met is owned by the devil. Now, do you believe that's hard to believe? Do you believe that? Because it's, it's true. If you don't, you're starting to demonstrate a non-biblical worldview. And if you do believe this, how does this affect you? There's a passage that brings sort of all of this really well together. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, talking pre-Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. See, Paul says the trouble is we as humans are not just having a bad day. We're not just out of harmony. We don't just have a cold spiritually or in the hospital or, or, or we're sort of on some spiritual respirator. No, no, no. The Bible is clear. Human beings are spiritually dead in the morgue. The funeral home is our home spiritually. And this is not just metaphor. This is not future. This is now. All human beings are fundamentally spiritually lifeless, motionless, cannot, this is what it means, connect with God. From top to bottom, the most religious and non-religious person are spiritually dead. It's universal. It's utter. It's total. It's conclusive. And not only are we spiritually dead, we're marked by transgression and sin. Every human being missed the mark. Every one of us has slipped and fallen and can't get back up. Every single one of us have participated in words and deeds that violate a deliberate, deliberately violate God's will and God's law. We've all trespassed to places we're not allowed to go. We all have a debt we cannot repay. As one person said, sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. Okay, let me keep reading. So that's sin, enemy one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins when you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world, number two enemy, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, number three, the spirit who is now at work and all of those who are disobedient. He said, every person on earth who's not a Christian walks in, steps after, characterizes a life that is anti-God in some way. And that phrase, the world matters. Let me come back to that. It just reads the age. This phrase, the world, is used 186 times in the New Testament. Like 99% of them are not good. When you read, for God so loved the world, it's not the globe. It's for God so loved a dark, broken, dangerous, rebellious age. It has an evil connotation. And there's no way out of this. It was Tim Keller, I believe, who talked about different forms of worldliness. He said, secularism, I don't need God. Atheist, agnostic, humanist, self-achieving, I don't need God. That's one form. Amoral, I don't believe in morals. I don't believe in truth. Postmodernism, my truth is my experience. Repudiating absolutes, worldliness. Uh, materialism, glorifying the market. Another one is religious. I am saved by what I do. 
Let me add one, spirituality. I gain spiritual power or, or mindfulness or centering when I access things I do or other things that are not scripture and the Holy Spirit. All of that is worldliness. <laughs> and the crazy thing is large groups of people tend to belong to one or two of them and they're against other people and other systems. The wild thing though is none of them are from God. All of them at their core leave out God and are human and demonic and exalt human beings. In other words, so the most devoted kind Orthodox Jew or Muslim or Buddhist and the most devoted atheist and the kindest spiritually mindful person and the agnostic who's in the Tim Hortons line, they all think the other person's wrong, but they're all involved in worldliness and they think the other people are dangerous and lost and actually they're all lost. So note or not, We've not only all been infected by sin and we're spiritually dead and we've participated in multiple world systems, also we have been following and owned by Satan. The so-called God of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of air, the one who owns this world. Again, he oversees principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. He controls the spiritual forces of wickedness to wage war against God, against the church, but also to hold the whole human family back from the God that loves them. Now, when you hear the word possession, you assume, blah, right? Some weird thing. And it's true sometimes. But actually, possession in the Bible is about ownership more than the experience. Possession is always positional and sometimes presence. Let me say that again. Possession is always positional and sometimes presence. You're either possessed, owned by Christ, or owned by the other side. There are only two kingdoms. There's no in-between place. That is capital R reality. But this is the amen moment. This is the white hanky moment. God broke in and God has started to replace that kingdom with his kingdom. Christmas, which we just celebrated, is the beginning of invasion, redemption, the conquering of this kingdom by the other. And there is a way now to join the better side, the loving side, the forgiving side, the creator side through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, because he's the only one who has the power to bring you back to life, to meet him in the first place. There's one verse that I think is so important for this whole series that sort of is sort of like the crystallized summary of it all. First John 5, 19, we know we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is the transitional moment. This verse talks about switching side. This means when you become a Christian, you switch allegiances. Ownership changes hands. At this very juncture, one of the critical things in modern Christianity, especially here in the West, is we have lost the affirmation of Jesus's ownership over our lives and living out of that. To put it in biblical language, when you stop being a slave to sin and you stop being a slave to Satan, then you become a willing slave to Jesus. We're all always gonna be owned by someone. The question is, what master do you want? In Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, we've been bought with a high price, so we're owned. But of course, we're also friends with Jesus and brothers and sisters with Jesus, and we're also become children. But you can't lose this idea that the transaction from one slavery to another is true and if you don't move to one side, you're still owned by the other side. Jesus, though, is the better master. He'll lead us better than even we could lead ourselves, right? So as we begin this series, 
Let me say a few things, but let me start here. Do not fear. God is eternal. The demonic are not, nor are we. And God is great, and God has overcome, and everything is already under Jesus' feet. But just because all of that is true does not mean we should not have a biblical understanding of spiritual conflict. And we also need to acknowledge this war is not a phony war. This is a real war with real casualties. And so, as we begin this series together as a church, and many of you watching beyond our community, the very first thing we need to do is ask God to impress on us, to let us know who God really fully is. The focus should be on God first, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then who we are. The foundation of the conversation for the Christian when it comes to spiritual conflict is that beginning of 1 John 5, 19. We know, we know that we know that we know that we are what? Children of God. Oh, and the world is under the control of the evil one. In that order, we must ask God as we begin this series to prove to us, to enforce in us. And I don't mean prove like to show, like just show us, Lord, we're so desperate. Enforce, help us see if we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then that's how we stand. Who possesses you is the grounding of your identity. Let me say that again. Who possesses you is the grounding of your identity. So if you know that you're a child of God and loved by God, you can stand. If you don't know that, you're gonna fall. Second, we need to ask God to give us the eyes to see the unholy trinity in our life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our world. One of the take-homes this week is literally in your walk with Jesus moments, you need to say, Lord, show me my sin. And by the way, God gets to define sin, not us. His word defines it, not us. We also need to say, God, show me what world systems are affecting me. You know, I've watched very, very carefully so many people in our community beyond call other people out on all sorts of major social issues that are worldliness. But when was the last time you stopped and asked the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what worldly system you're involved in that you love and you don't think is worldly, but God says it is? This is a real moment to say, Holy Spirit, show me my personal sin. Oh, and Lord, show me the world system I'm comfortable with. And lastly, show me where Satan or the demonic are involved in my family or my life or my neighborhood's life. Lastly, though, we need to ask God for a desire for, let me, I can't overemphasize this, for ongoing freedom. What does Jesus promise? Christians, John 10.10, 10, the thief, that Satan, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his, that's his MO, that's his job. But I have come that they might have life and life in the full. Life and life in the full. Many of us don't want life in the full as Jesus defines it though. Even as Christians, we're saved, we're children of God, we're part of the kingdom of light, but we struggle, but not only struggle, sometimes we wanna go back. We face this on a daily basis, but not only that, I, I feel so impressed as I was preparing this sermon. One or some of you that are listening to me preach right now, you are making the decision actually to leave the Christian faith or to fake it, to make it. And this is God speaking to you. The story of the Jewish people just after their freedom is the picture we need to set the tone for this series and actually for God prophetically to speak to some of you. 
Remember the story, right? Plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea is split, Egyptian army drowned. God made the Egyptians actually give all of their riches to the Jewish people as they left. No longer slaves after 420 plus years. And God's physical presence is literally among them. It doesn't get better. 30 days after all of that had passed, food is running out, the water situation is dangerous, and the people become angry and want to go back. Only a few days earlier, if you read just before Exodus 16, God had taken poisonous water and literally made it clean. But suddenly it says in Exodus 16 too, the whole, in the desert, the whole godly community grumbled against Moses and Aaron and, and the Jews said to them, if we'd only died right by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out here to the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I've preached this before, let me do it again. What happened? What changed? When did abuse and slavery and wholesale human trafficking and no freedom and humans treated like animals and, and, and death become Disney and clean streets and great food and justice for all and fun for the whole family? When did they start thinking that the Nile was an amazing place? I remind you that thousands of Jewish boys had been drowned there so they wouldn't be able to have more Jewish, like this is violent. And Moses, who's hearing this, was almost killed in that river. He had floated in that river and barely made it out. What happened is when people were set free, everything they had relied upon suddenly was gone and the only person left to rely upon was God. Huh. When they stopped trusting God and they stopped looking at God, they looked everywhere else and then most distressing, they started looking back. The pattern is repeated again and again throughout the Bible and in our lives. The, the best way I love to summarize this comes from Asfa, who was one of the great uh, psalmists. And he wrote this in Psalm 73.1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot or my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Verse three. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They got no struggles. Their bodies are healthy, good-looking, strong, right? They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human wills, uh, ills. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care, going on amassing wealth. Surely in vain. Here's, here's why the Lord's speaking to some of you. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in an it. Surely it's not worth being not worldly, not sinful, resisting the devil. It's like that famous matrix moment. Put me back in. It's just too hard. When I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. I was really struggling until I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. When you look back and you remember who God is and what he's done, then the panic is removed. In other words, God is saying to you and to our whole church, hey, my beloved kids, that place that you're looking at going to, Egypt slavery, brutal. The sin, the world, the demonic, they are never kind masters. Since you've been brought out of Egypt by Jesus, don't look back. What's the old song? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. This is like what God is saying. Love me like you did a month ago in the Jewish context. Don't envy, don't look back, don't look to the left or to the right. Don't look to yourself. Look up and know love and holiness and freedom that lasts. Again, let me ask the question on so many people's minds. Why did the Jewish people look back and invent a place that did not exist? It was stupid. You're like, you know so much better. It was literally 30 days ago. 
It's because it's all they knew. They were used to it. It was weirdly safe. They had a love-hate relationship with Egypt. It's like why people go back to abusive spouses over and over again or back to alcohol or drugs because it's comforting, it's consuming, and it's what is known. But now we who've been called by God the Father, bought by Jesus, owned by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, no, no, don't go back. I gave everything to set you free. That's week one. That's what spiritual conflict is on a grand level. Some of you need to go back this week and pray, Lord, show me the world, the flesh, and the devil in my life. Others of us just need to grapple with this. But I'm just gonna pray a simple prayer. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit who comforts and convicts. Lead us into all truth. May the devil not be able to speak in Jesus' name, nor our inventions, none of it. Just would you lead us in all truth? May we see the world as it is. Would you show us where the three enemies are involved in our life? Help us to stand against that. And for those who are about to leave, bring them radically back to yourself. Guide us, lead us, and continue to grow us in truth, holiness, and love as Sanctus Church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you for part two next week.